Our reading this evening is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, to Genesis 3, verse 8. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. Ellie, thank you for reading for us. Um, as usual, I'm going to encourage you to uh, have your Bible open in front of you as we go through 
this passage. And we always encourage you to do that. We think it's a good thing for us to do. But I think particularly this passage is really helpful to understand when we look closely at what the text says. There's a lot to discern as to what's going on. So that will help as we go through. Um, But let's ask too for the Lord's help. So let's pray together. Well, God, our Father, you, uh, through your Holy Spirit, have authored the words of the Bible uh, through your servants. And you've also promised to give your spirit to your disciples. And Lord, we thank you, therefore, that your spirit is with us today. And we ask, therefore, that your spirit would help us to read your words, to understand your word, and then would change us to love your son, the Lord Jesus, and follow him closely. In Jesus' name, amen. Paradise lost. We're witnesses tonight of, with, what, with one exception, the worst event in the history of humanity, the fall. Everything in Eden was perfect. Perfect garden in a perfect creation. Humanity in perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with each other. That's what we've seen over these last uh, two weeks. It was paradise. But so quickly, just two chapters into the Bible, just six verses, chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, so quickly everything goes wrong. A fall, a twist, a fracture appears in our world. By the end of chapter 3, we find humanity in broken relationship with creation broken relationship with the creatures, broken relationship with each other, and most fundamentally of all, a broken relationship with God himself. What was a paradise of life and light and love turns to darkness, disruption, disconnection, distance, decay, disease, and death. What went wrong? That great question hovers in the heart of every human being. What went wrong? How did it so horribly, terribly go wrong? How did it go wrong in the first place? And why is it still going wrong today? For all our progress over the centuries, why do we still see a creation that's falling apart For all our educational programs, why do we still see a humanity doing such harm to humanity? For all our technology, why is there no solution to disease and death? More than that, can what's gone wrong be fixed? Can it be fixed? So that we're just going to look at verses three, uh, chapter three, verses one to six. It's a brilliantly constructed account which has the power to reveal to us what went wrong with our world, why it's still going wrong, and it points us to how it can be fixed. Now, the way we're going to tackle it is on the back of uh, the service sheets, and that will help you as we go through. Uh, but let's turn uh, to the text, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
Paradise Interrupted. A new character enters the scene and his appearance is troubling. A serpent. Not merely a serpent, in fact, a serpent who's described as being more crafty, more shrewd, more cunning than any of the other creatures. There's a wariness that creeps into our heart as soon as we hear about him. Who is he and why can he talk? Well, the text here in Genesis does not explain. It simply says that he is a beast of the field. That seems important because it shows us that he's a created being. And until now, the created beings in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, well, they've been under mankind's dominion. That's about to be reversed. The text of Genesis at least shows us this, that humanity won't be able to say that they've been overpowered. They aren't taken captive by force because, well, God has given them authority over all the creatures, all the beasts of the field, not the other way around. But other than that, we're not given any more information at this stage. However, the rest of the Bible is really clear as to the serpent's identity. Revelation 12 is probably the clearest place. It tells us this. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It's pretty clear. This is Satan, the adversary a rebellious, angelic being who's come into the world, has taken the form of a serpent, or perhaps he's co-opted a serpent for his purposes. And that purpose is to deceive. Actually, the writer of Genesis hints at that for us in his description of the serpent. He tells us that he is crafty. We're already alert, aren't we, to the fact that what he says may not be trustworthy. Now, um, we might still have questions about the presence of this serpent, questions about how that works, or questions about why God permits this. Uh, This text just doesn't answer them. Um, There there are answers. The Bible does give answers. Um, I'm going to be very happy to talk to you afterwards about that if you'd like to discuss it um, with me. What the text does do is engages us in dialogue. The serpent enters into conversation with the woman and his speech is full of lies. Lies which are aimed at a specific target. They're they're there to cast doubt about the character of God and his words. They're to question his goodness and his trustworthiness and they're to cause disobedience to his command. Now, we'll come to the conversation in a second, but let's just notice that it really is a bit of a shock that Satan gets Adam and Eve to disobey. Think about what we've seen already in Genesis 1 and 2 over the last few weeks. God's been shown to be a perfectly good and loving creator, generously blessing the people that he's made. He's given them all that they need and all that they could want. He made them, he gave them the breath of life, he blessed them with abundant food, he gave them gold and precious stones and sweet-smelling perfumes, he blessed them with each other and the joy of sex, he blessed them with real purpose, he gave them a role, a job to do, to fulfill the earth and subdue it. 
He gave them a world of abundant blessing with just one, only one prohibition. You can have everything. Just don't eat from that one tree. That's all. Just look back at chapter 2, verse 16. Here we see the prohibition. We, uh, Ellie read it for us earlier. Chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. See, God couldn't be more generous to them. He couldn't be clearer about the obedience he requires from them and the devastating consequence for disobedience. But somehow Satan gets them to doubt God's goodness, to reject God's authority, to disobey this one command and plunge themselves and all who follow them into disaster. How? How does he get them to do it? And how has he got us, their descendants, to follow them? Well, let's listen to this devastating conversation. This is the second part of verse 1 to verse 5. God is questioned. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the serpent's lies, they come in three parts, and each one levers the woman further away uh, from the truth. They're just on the back of the server sheet for you. Lie number one, second part of verse one, God's word is questionable. That's the first lie. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The question seems pretty uh, innocuous. Just asking a question, not making an accusation. But look again. First word in the Hebrew is the word actually or or really. See, this isn't a question that's asking about what God's word means. It's good to ask questions like that to find out answers to them. No, this is a question to make God's word seem questionable. Did he really say this? I mean, it seems a bit unreasonable if he did, doesn't it? Just places a seed of doubt. One more subtle thing here is that the serpent omits the word Lord. Now, up to now uh, in this account, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, this uh, account of uh, the creation story, And then again, after this conversation, in chapter 3, verse 8 and onwards, it is always the Lord God. It's always God's covenant name. And that conveys both his authority as Lord, but also his personal relationship with humanity. It's his name. And Satan omits that, just calls him God. He's just subtly distancing himself 
and the woman from the Lord God, questioning his authority over her. Is he really the Lord or not? It's very crafty. Of course, the obvious thing in this first lie is that God didn't say what Satan says he did. In fact, he said quite the opposite. See, it would be unreasonable for God to say they couldn't eat from any tree. But in fact, he said they could eat from every tree. Yes to every tree, just one no. So through this crafty question, Satan has made God's word questionable and seem unreasonable. Now, it doesn't convince the woman, not yet. But it just creates space in her mind that, that there is some wriggle room, that, that disobedience might just be a reasonable thing to consider, if God were as restrictive as Satan makes him seem. But she's not yet persuaded. Let's see her reply. Let me just, at this point, let me encourage you to look really closely at the text and see, I want you to look at verse 2 and 3 and see and try and notice what she omits and what she adds. Something missing and there's something added. So verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And what did you see? You see what she omits and what she adds? Let's start with what's missing. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It's almost correct, isn't it? She takes away, she misses the word every, doesn't she? God had said that they could eat of every tree, bar one, in the garden. And she loses that word. In her mind, God's generosity doesn't seem to be quite as generous as it used to. Now, verse 3. But God said, oh, hang on, look, there's the missing word. She's adopted Satan's terminology for God. He's no longer the Lord God to her. And then, of course, the most significant thing, the big addition to God's word at the end of verse 3. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. We're very good at adding to God's word, aren't we? The Lord's God has become, in her mind, less generous than he really is, and more repressive and more restrictive than he really is. He has become harsher. He's become more unreasonable, hasn't he? See, Satan just had to ask one sceptical question of God's word, one lie planted, and the woman's beginning to doubt the Lord's character and the goodness of his word. And disobedience is just starting to seem like a reasonable option. That's lie number one. Now let's move on to lie number two. God's judgment is not real. It's verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. Now this is a bit bolder, isn't it? It's a direct contradiction. He makes her doubt God's judgment. Now God had said that you would die. It was certain death. That was the consequence for disobedience to his commands. He couldn't have been clearer. But now Satan says, no, 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 he was bluffing. He couldn't mean that. He wouldn't actually do that. He's trying to lower the severity of the consequences of sin. He's making it seem inconsequential, which of course makes disobedience more likely. When there are serious consequences to something, the loving thing to do is to warn people about it, isn't it? It's why those electrical cupboards, they've got those big yellow signs on them. Do you know those? Ones with the electric kind of squiggle at the top, sort of lightning strike, and and there's a body kind of lying on the floor underneath it. And the words, danger of death. It's a loving thing to do to make the warning clear when the danger is so severe. Quite rightly, if a company didn't put up those signs and someone went in and got frazzled, well, they'd be held liable. That's bad. But it's far worse, deeply wicked, for someone to remove the sign when they know what will happen. Just so, it is a satanic lie to say that disobedience to God's word will not bring judgment. But we hear that lie all the time, don't we? Some people will say that the things that the Bible says are sins, well, they're not really sins. Or they'll say, well, sin's not really that bad anyway. Or hell is not real. Or judgment's not something a loving God would do. Told all those things, despite God's word clearly saying the opposite to that. And we're told that by people who know better, by church leaders, by theologians, by those who know full well what God's word actually says. They take away the danger of death sign from the cupboard of sin. They make disobedience seem inconsequential and they're sending people to destruction. Serpent's second lie is still active on the lips of many. There's one final deception, lie number three. Lie number three is in verse uh, five. Here it is. God is holding you back from your true potential. Here's the clincher. So let's begin at verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Verse five. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now this lie does two things. It defames God and it appeals to the base desire of the human heart. First of all, it defames God. The serpent assigns to God a selfish motive for making his law. He's in effect saying this. He's saying, look, God knows that you could be more but he doesn't want a rival. He knows that you could be like him and he fears that outcome. 
God is a spoil sport. He's holding you back from who you could really be, your true potential. It defames God's good character. God who has lovingly given the human beings everything, life itself, all that blessing, done nothing but bless them. It defames him. But it also appeals to the deepest desires of the human heart. He goes on, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now that phrase, I think, can't simply mean knowing the difference between good and evil. Um, The woman already knows that taking the fruit is wrong. So I don't think it could be that. It's, it's knowing good and evil in the sense that God does. Being like God, knowing good and evil. And what's God's relationship to good and evil? Well, it's this. It's not merely knowing what good and evil are. It's deciding what good and evil are. You can be like him, Satan says. You can decide. And that's really attractive, isn't it? Next weekend, uh, we're going to witness a coronation. I know some people aren't going to watch it, and that's, that's fine. That's up to you. But most of us are going to witness a coronation. King Charles III, um, he will sit on his throne before us uh, in all his majesty. He'll have a crown on his head, a scepter in his hands. And my guess is that he'll have people kneeling uh, all around him. Now, I'm sure that at some point during the day, uh, a thought like this might cross most of our minds. Wouldn't it be good if I could be king? Or if I could be queen, if you're a woman? Wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't it be good if I could have all the wealth and the privilege that I feel that I deserve? Wouldn't it be good if I could have all that power to act as I please? If I could make the rules? If I could have people bow to me and do my bidding? Wouldn't it be good if I could define who I am? If I could create my own identity, if I could build my own kingdom and rule my own kingdom, wouldn't that be good? This is the heart of the matter, the heart of what went wrong in paradise. See, the serpent lied, and the human beings, they were deceived by those lies into disobedience. But it worked because the human beings wanted to disobey. They wanted to take God's place. And we are just like our first parents, aren't we? Sin is attractive. Disobedience is attractive. It promises us autonomy, the ability to rule our own lives, to shake off God's authority, to live as we please. We want that above anything else. And so the lies work. They worked back then and they still work today. Lie number one, God's word is questionable. So disobedience becomes a reasonable option. Lie number two, God's judgment is not real. So disobedience seems inconsequential. Uh, Lie number three, God is holding you back from your true potential. So disobedience seems attractive. Well, let's see the final step. This is chapter 3, verse 6. Humanity disobeys. It's a devastating verse, maybe the most devastating in the whole Bible. So 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's all over, just like that. The fall of humanity, paradise lost through this rebellion. The fruit would taste so sweet, and it looked so good, and above all, it offered wisdom. It offered the prospect of rising to the level of God's. She saw, she took, and she gave. That last phrase is interesting, isn't it? For the first time in the story, we learn that Adam was with her all the time. It'd be easy to blame the woman. In fact, that's exactly what Adam tries to do in the very next um, section. But the Lord holds him responsible. Adam was given the original command. In fact, he was given it before the woman was even made. He was there the whole time, but he stayed quiet, not challenging the serpent who was deceiving his wife. And he disobeyed and ate. In fact, though the woman was culpable for her own actions, the Bible as a whole will will lay responsibility at Adam's door for the mess that will follow. Apostle Paul would later write these words in Romans. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Disobedience brings death. In Adam, our first father, all humanity disobeys and all humanity will die. From that moment, what was a paradise of life and light and love turns to darkness, disruption, disconnection, distance, decay, disease, and death become part of our world. What went wrong? Rebellion. And the effects of that we'll explore uh, next week. For now, as we close, let me just ask, how does this passage leave us when we leave it there? How does it leave us feeling? It's very dark, isn't it? Where's the good news in 1 to 6? Where's the hope? There is some coming later on in chapter 3. We're going to see that next week. But I wonder if these verses, they just leave us with that sense of loss. And alongside that, a sense of longing that that things have been different. Find ourselves wishing that it hadn't happened. If only they'd listened. Sorry, if only they hadn't. If they listened to God, but hadn't listened to Satan. If only they resisted temptation. But they didn't. If only there was a man who had the strength to stand up and speak back to the evil one. If only there was someone who could hold fast to God's word, who could protect his bride from being deceived. If only there was a man who could rescue us, who could deal with all the darkness, the disruption, the disconnection, the distance, the decay, the disease and death. If only there were one who had the power to restore to us the paradise of life and light and love.
If only it could be fixed. That's the question we have at the end of verse 6. Please will someone fix this? Though this passage itself may have little good news, it's not the end of the story. There is in Jesus Christ a new Adam. In each of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark and Luke, each of the synoptic gospels, but uh, there's an account of Jesus when he goes into battle with Satan in the wilderness. Matthew's gospel is the most simple, simple, clearest explanation of what happens There we see Satan try to tempt Jesus and he misquotes God's word and he tempts him with food, with bread and with power. He offers him a crown, the right to rule all the earth. Yet Jesus holds fast to God's word and resists temptation. He obeys. And in fact, he always obeys. He never breaks one of God's commands. It's a life of perfect obedience He is a new and better Adam. Then at the end of his life, he goes to be crucified on a Roman cross and we read these words. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew shows us Jesus Christ, the new and perfect Adam, the obedient man. He shows him taking upon himself all our sin, all our rebellion, and experiencing the darkness. The judgment of God, the disruption, the disconnection, distance, decay, disease, it's all taken into himself and he dies. He lived the life we should have lived and dies the death we should have died and pays the penalty our rebellion deserves. Yet wonderfully, that's not the end of the story either. It doesn't end in darkness. For on the third day he rises from the dead he breaks satan's power and he offers new life eternal life and relationship with god to everyone who will trust in him paul writes about this resurrection to the christians uh, the corinthians and says this in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death by adam By a man came also the resurrection from the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. At the end of Genesis 3, 1 to 6, we find ourselves wishing that it hadn't happened, that Adam hadn't disobeyed, and we're left longing for someone to fix what's gone wrong, someone who would deal with our sin and God's judgment, someone who will give us the power, perhaps, to resist the lies of the evil one, someone who will restore the paradise that's been lost. At the end of the story, we find the joyful news that God has sent his son Jesus Christ, a second Adam, who through an obedient life and his death in our place and his resurrection, through that has begun to restore all things.
and will restore all things. He's bringing about a new creation. He's giving us his spirit so that we might obey our creator. Paradise lost in Christ the new Adam becomes paradise restored. Let's pray. Oh God, as we read of the uh, historical account of humanity's fall, we grieve over everything that's been lost. We're sorry that we have rejected you, that we've listened to the lies of the evil one, that we've disobeyed your word, that we've wanted to take your place, that we wanted to rule instead of you. We confess that to you, our Lord God, and we ask for your forgiveness. And we thank you so much that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, as a second Adam, that he was perfectly obedient and that he died in our place for our sins to restore us to you. Thank you for all that he has done. In Jesus' name, amen.